Hello and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode six of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder and head of ventures here at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sanket, who's the CEO at Synapse. How are you doing today, Sanket? I'm doing good, Simon. How are you? Really well, thank you. I'm excited for today's show. Uh, on the last one, we looked at lending and credit scores um, and how fintechs and new ideas and technology are really changing that lending space. But today, oh my goodness, it's cryptocurrency, crypto assets, stable coins, and examining how they are going to disrupt global money movement. Um, and we want to dive deeper into this, so we brought some friends with us. Uh, first up is Jonathan Conway, who's CTO over at Mode. Um, could you give everybody the uh, short version of who Mode are? Sure. Um, so Mode currently are the easiest way, at least I like to think so, the easiest way to actually buy Bitcoin. Um, in the UK, we interface with open banking. So, And you can usually send someone through KYC in 11 minutes and you could actually purchase Bitcoin in under 15. So yeah, that's us. I like anything that involves 11. And Brian Lewis, who's author of Cryptocurrency Revolution. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Simon. Really glad to have you back. And uh, Sankit, you brought a friend as well. Yeah, uh, I also brought in Neil, uh, who's the CEO of Donut. Uh, Neil, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, happy to. So uh, contrary to popular belief, we, we don't make donuts. Um, but what, what we actually do is we uh, have got the, one of the easiest ways you can use uh, DeFi to produce high yield on savings. Well, I am heartbroken. <laughs> what? <laughs> I am absolutely heartbroken and hungry, um, which sounds like the name of my memoirs. But with uh, without further ado, let's crack on with the show. Um, we've thrown out a few terms right at the beginning of this. Cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, stable coins. Rian, do you want to just unpack that a little bit for me? Like crypto assets like Bitcoin versus stable coins. Let's just get some definitions out of the way. What's the difference between those two? Well, well if this was um, something where people could see me, I'd be breaking out a chart right now, dividing it into quadrants with little clusters of things because uh, stable coins encompasses so many different types of things. But essentially, a stable coin is a type of cryptocurrency that is specially designed to hold its value against something else, normally a fiat currency, often a dollar. So in some cases, you have uh, stable coins which run on public networks, best known of those probably Tether, USDC, and then others might be running on private or consortium networks like the token that JP Morgan have developed in-house, JPM coin, um, Facebook's upcoming DM token, which was rebranded from Libra. And then even within those, you have other differences between them. For example, you might have um, stable coins which which are backed by either fiat currency reserves or crypto reserves, others that hold their value just algorithmically. And within the company, um, private type ones, you have ones that are open to the general public, like Facebook's um, forthcoming offering, and ones that are not available for retail customers like JPM coin. You see, you've got all these kind of myriad differences between them. But um, the key thing about them really is the name. They're stable. They're stable against something. 
It's a stable and it's a coin. And everybody argued about, oh, well, I can't use crypto because it's volatile. Somebody comes along and says, here's a coin and it's stable. But Neil, what can I do with these things? It's it, it's great to have them, but I've already got US dollars. I've already got pounds. Why would I want any of these things? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Simon. So I think it's worth understanding first, there is this new world that's grown um, called decentralized finance, which allows... Uh, for, for the everyday person, for example, the ability to lend um, and earn a high yield on their assets like they've never been able to before, borrow in, in seconds. Um, this, this new world has really been created over the last few years. Um, really, to power that world, you need a digital dollar, um, which is at the heart of um, what, what stable coins enable. Um, so really, when, when we talk about um, this, this boom in stablecoin market, we're seeing these new use cases, which are really reshaping financial services. And actually, the stablecoins are the kind of uh, juice to, 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 to sort of uh, fuel that ecosystem. I, I like that perspective. So maybe maybe taking a, a different view, if, if that's the utility, how's it different from the old world? And where are some of the major differences in terms of those um, the pain points of using uh, traditional infrastructure? What, what would be my alternative really looking like? Well, I think one of the key differences is the ability of stablecoins to plug into different types of infrastructure. Um, for example, social media payments, decentralized applications, machine-to-machine payments. Basically, you're talking about removing not just intermediaries, but the friction that comes with these intermediaries, especially across borders. And while it's obviously a fairly seismic change in the world of TradFi traditional finance, it's um, because there are obviously perceived counterparty risks from some of the issuers. You've got to think about alternatives or else that we're not going to have a financial system that kind of plugs into, into the rest of our digital lives. And yeah. That's such an important point uh, that, that our digital lives are now a thing and the financial system might not be there. Sanke, I think you probably dealt with countless entrepreneurs trying to mo- do money movement. What are you seeing as you look at the entrepreneurial community and what are you seeing in the stablecoin space in particular? Yeah, um, I think all of the entrepreneurs uh, that I've spoken with, by and large, are reacting to a customer need, right? So um, there, there are about, like, there are three facets of needs. And I think uh, um, some of them are higher order priority and some of them are things that us as builders, we care about, but consumers don't care about as much. But here are the three things. The first big piece is digitally native. Uh, how easy is it for you to be able to interface with your money digitally? Uh, um, all of the coins, all the cryptocurrencies have a good head start on it. But the interesting thing is they're extremely complex. So it's taking some time to get them to a place where a Main Street customer uh, or a consumer can just adopt them and use them. But they have a head start compared to banking. The second big piece is consistency on return on investment, right? Like that's a consistent value proposition that customers really care about. They want to be able to put their money somewhere where it multiplies. Um, and based on the current interest yield that any 
any U.S. bank is providing you, uh, stable coins through the arbitrage market end up being a good alternative to getting a return on investment. And the third piece is something that consumers don't care about as much, but us as builders, we care about a whole lot. It's resilience, like how, how much more stable is this infrastructure compared to the centralized infrastructures in itself. But consumers are by and large coming in for the first two. Um, and today, most of the entrepreneurs are building for the second because there is still some ways to go on the first. And third is just a benefit that you'll get on the side, but that's not something that end customers are focused on as much. So Jonathan, talk to me about yield and give me some comparisons um, of the banking industry today versus why consumers in particular might be looking at, at, at some of these stable coins and DeFi and, and using it as a store of value. Sure, sure. So um, it really depends on where you actually... Um, I guess, putting your, um, providing liquidity. Um, so I, I think last summer you could actually get up to like a thousand percent interest. It's not like that anymore. Um, but if you're looking at something like Aave, I think it's around about 5% currently. If you, and compare that to what I get from, I think one of my savings accounts, it's something like less than 1%. So that, that's the kind of thing we're looking at in comparison. It's 0.5 versus 5% tends to be the, the standard number. And Neil, I guess you're close to that because there's a user experience problem with with going directly to some of these tokens. Jonathan mentioned Aave. What's an Aave and, and how does a consumer really relate to that versus I just want somewhere to put my money? Yeah, and I think this is one of the core problems in the, in the ecosystem. Um, for, for the average consumer, Using a protocol like Aave involves converting fiat currency to a stable coin and then lending it out on the protocol. And that actually, I, I tried it once um, uh, last month and it took me actually 30 minutes to do that process, right, as, 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 some, as someone in, in the industry. So I think whilst the value proposition is really clear, um, connecting the dots um, with, a, with a very easy to walk line is, is, is the hard part and, and making that process slick. Um, but Simon, you, you asked a little bit about um, this kind of evolution in this market. And I, I would draw on one sort of analogy here of, you know, the, the Internet is there to move around digital information. You can still move around paper and, and media and in, in, in sort of hard copy if you want. If you look at actually what's happening in, in digital assets, that's really the, the step change that we're on where you've got these digital assets facilitating newer and emerging use cases. And that's a whole different uh, plane that, that this world is uh, sort of evolving to. Rian, I really like the term money Legos um, and the idea that um, it, I think it's the guys over at Mirror have been using. Um, what is this um, term like permissionless innovation? And does that mean it's all unregulated and bad for consumers? Like, un Unpack that for me a little bit. Well, it's a common fallacy, isn't it, for um, everyone to think that all cryptos are unregulated. But um, in fact, they're not. <laughs> and as much as it's, um, you know, idealistic and marvellous to think about a world in which these things would not be regulated at all, everyone is very interested in them. And as everyone knows, you have to go through, it's it's the on-ramps and off-ramps. KYC, you know your customer is very, very important. And the, the thing is that 
different countries obviously have different um, approaches to this. And I think that's going to be one of the problems with permissionless networks in the very short term, is that when you're talking about global payments, you might have um, one regulatory authority that's very open to the idea, whereas other authorities are very wary about this. And even within the states, you've got this separate group of people in Congress who believe that only banks should issue stable coins, only CBDCs, only central bank digital currencies should be issued, and so on. So um, permissionless and the whole idea of money Legos where I could develop my own DeFi protocol um, and just you know, everybody could be using it while it was still on GitHub, like we've seen before with some of the protocols, people have actually just like launched them themselves before they've been audited and just jump in and use them in a modular way plugged into the rest of the whole DeFi ecosystem. It's a really compelling vision. And I think you absolutely need that move fast and break things attitude in order to innovate. But then it comes up against this thing, obviously, of regulators being very cautious that people might jump into schemes they don't fully understand and lose everything. So it's a constant. And that's the thing, isn't it, Rian? Is like being your own bank is fine until you've got your own bank robbers. And actually the cognitive overhead, as Neil was saying, of dealing with some of these underlying base protocols is great if you're a sophisticated trader because you can make a real difference. But for the consumer, it could be really scary. And that regulatory confusion is is a really important point, isn't it? That you've got the OCC on one hand saying banks can operate a charter, chartered banks can, banks can operate a charter, chartered banks can hold crypto on their balance sheet. And they, now you see Kraken and, and uh, banks in Wyoming starting to get these licenses. That's really, really powerful. But um, Sanka, it was Chris Dixon at A16Z that's um, wrote the famous um, uh, kind of essay, it always starts out looking like a toy. And he also wrote one um, on crypto networks where he said that um, it, he compared it almost to Encarta and Wikipedia. Um, Microsoft Encarta was for a long time the default standard, and you had to reference that if you were doing academic work. And you couldn't use Wikipedia because it was too crazy, there was too much vandalism. Is that a fair metaphor, or do you have a different perspective? Um, I think it's partially fair. I think that's very fair on the technology side. Um, here's where it stops becoming a fair metaphor. Uh, uh, no one... By and large, uh, no one gets heavily compensated or their their motivations cannot skew too much one way or the other if they could own a piece of a content on Wikipedia versus um, if you get Bitcoin or crypto assets transferred to you, uh, uh, there could be... Uh, cases and motivations involved that are hard to understand and regulate from, from just a, a, a consumer wellness and individual wellness perspective. To be more direct and not abstract, uh, cryptocurrencies inherently in, uh, have the same issues that cash does, except now they're more contagious because you don't have to be in person to exchange this. You can just exchange this virtually, which makes it extremely hard uh, uh, to monitor for financial crime or uh, uh, monitor for anything of substance. 
and gets even more scarier once there's enough liquidity in the network that you don't have to on-ramp, off-ramp all the time. There's enough money floating around in there that enough people have bought into this and they will take that as a form of payment. And that's the piece that a lot of tech-focused people miss. And I think that's a piece that Congress and regulators are not articulating well, but it's at the core of the concern more than anything else. You create this alternative reality. And like, if I'm a software engineer right now, do I want to get paid in US dollars? Um, Or if I'm young, do I want to get paid in USDC and actually have that making 5 to 10% yield for me? And I can live and pay for a lot of stuff in that world, especially now there are debit cards that are linked to those accounts like um, that you can spend with every day. I think BlockFi's done one and several others have worked along that those lines. So uh, I take your point, Sanket, there's this alternative world kind of emerging and the regulators see risk in that and, and don't really see how that world is, is going to be um, complied with and controlled. Jonathan, I'm interested in your views on all of this because you sit at that intersection between kind of open banking and, and this world. How, how do you think about um, mitigating and managing some of that? Is that a solvable problem? Um, so we actually use there. There are solutions out there. So we use um, chain analysis to try and figure out whether um, certain transfers are actually coming from wallets that might be involved in illegal activities. Um, we also have um, real-time transaction monitoring that actually figures out whether somebody is actually doing things where involved. Um, but I think it's it's right to say that it's still like an evolving space. We haven't got it right. Um, and at the minute, what we're doing is just trying to, I guess, limit the exposure, um, at least within within mode. So you wouldn't be able to. I know there's probably certain um, exchanges, certain apps that would probably allow you to um, gain far more exposure, pump down a hundred thousand um, pounds worth of um, you know of cash, buy some BTC, and and, and um, Bob's your uncle. But um, I think for a lot of us, especially ones us in the industry that are trying to appeal to consumers. And we're having to kind of lower those limits, just lower the amount of risk um, across the board. But again, it's still evolving. I think that's an important point, isn't it? That there are controls out there. There are tools out there to do things like uh, know who the customer is, to do transaction monitoring and try and identify something that looks suspicious or negative and potentially block it in the interest of consumer protection, but also in the interests of like making this thing something that people actually want to use. And there are different perspectives on that, Neil, but um, I want to bring you in here and talk about um, kind of how much do you think this is? This has to be a new world that's that's kind of has no rules, or do you think that consumers are going to want that safety and protection? Yeah, good, good, great, great question, Simon. I I think it boils down to what what the regulators actually actually want, and and it's very simple. They want to protect two things. One is money laundering, and the second is uh, people from losing their money. So they come from a good place, uh, and, and and most people in the industry would agree that 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 that's you know, a, a good outcome if, if you can protect those two things. Um, I think the next level is actually then how do you embrace, um, you know, this this permissionless world with, uh, you know, this requirement to, to, to sort of protect consumers. Um, and I think at that intersection is where consumers, if you really want to get this into a mass adoption territory, it will be the norm for people to expect that um, there is an element of uh, data collected on people, um, you know, to protect them at, at, the, at the core. Um, so, so my view on this is over time, um, you know, we, we will see uh, a way that these worlds can coexist and they don't have to be two mutually exclusive worlds. 
Um, and, and that's kind of the intersection that, that, that can provide better financial services, better products to consumers, but then also satisfy the requirements for, um, you know, the, 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 the regulators uh, and make sure that, um, you know, they're, they're comfortable, that consumers are protected and, um, you know, there's, there's not, um, you know, undue money laundering going on. Yeah, there's also an argument to be made that with an open ledger, uh, if that becomes the standard, it's not current. Like it was the standard, now it's kind of not the standard in some cases. If if open ledger becomes the standard, then what OFAC or FBI really have to do is focus on uh, uh, identifying like nodes with high high concentration of transactions. That that ends up being the most important thing because really like. Like the big, the next big terrorist attack that potentially would happen, uh, uh, if it kind of happens using uh, blockchain, uh, you will see concentration of liquidity going going one way. Um, so, like it's much harder to use mules uh, once the ledger is totally open. So, I, I I do think it's quite promising in the long run uh, to be able to better mitigate against crime, but it would need some standardization versus not. Yeah, sunlight has always been the best disinfectant. And if you think about the reality of, of trying to prevent money laundering today, Senka, exactly as you say, there's lots of different banks that have their own records, but those records are sitting inside systems that may be 20, 30, 40 years old um, and in bits of paper. And then people are trying to figure out if that's all the same thing. Um, the uh, suspicious activity reports and the whole uh, anti-money laundering policy is the world's most ineffective policy. We... Uh, identify and detect maybe 1% of global financial crime. And of, the, uh, of that 1%, we successfully prosecute between 1% and 2%. And there's numerous academic studies that, that say exactly that. Um, and, and, that's, and it's some of the UN's own research um, looking into exactly that. The alternative is this, this dystopia where every transaction ever can be seen by everyone forever and therefore you have no privacy. So the idea that Bitcoin is anonymous is is just not true. The idea that crypto is anonymous is just not true. It is pseudonymous in its network, but if I have to use um, KYC wallets to get access to it, then actually it's very easy to see a perfect record of every transaction ever and it's very easy to follow the money. And this is why tools like Chainalysis have emerged that can allow you to follow the money across all of the nodes in the network in a way that you just cannot do in the banking industry. And I think that's super powerful, but it becomes almost more of a privacy concern than it does anything else. Rian, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, um, and this is related. Um, your phrase, sunshine is the best disinfectant. I just wanted to add quickly that that doesn't just apply to money laundering and um, regulation and so on, but also to code quality. I mean, um, to all of us who work, you know, on the engineering side, we all know that open source technologies and actually having code out there with um, millions of pairs of eyes on it, as a lot of these protocols are, is um, one of the best ways to have publicly available resilient systems that, I mean, you don't know what the software inside your bank looks like. And um, having spoken to different people who work on some banking legacy systems, I suspect 
a lot of people would be quite horrified. However, if you look at um, Bitcoin or any of the other um, public networks that have open source code, everybody can see what's going on. They can see what happens with every release. So I just wanted to make the point that Sunshine is the best disinfectant for code as well as for fraud. And other forms of market manipulation and other forms of illicit activity, it should be fair to say. I mean, it's probably fair to say that the people who wrote the software um, for most core banking systems and for most payment systems around the world did so long before the advent of um, modern software engineering practices and also did so with tiny bits of memory and terrible networks. So they had to make design choices that we no longer have to make inside um, modern software engineering practices. Jonathan, how does the the change of software engineering practice change what's possible for customers, change what's possible that you can do with the software? Because to me, the answer is you can just pick up and use this stuff, right? And you can start building and and versus what was it 20, 30 years ago, only certain people could access the payments rails. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Sure. So, um, I mean, in my past, I was working on open banking. And I guess the only way you could actually um, interact with, I guess, your bank account, get a list of your transactions, even making any payments was actually um, if you had access to um, basically a bank's private API. Now you've got open banking. Obviously, when we were developing open banking, we had to like layer that on a whole lot of like old fashioned technologies. So you could see with the version one of um, the open banking one of the things that actually kind of made sense it was just because of what was exposed to us um, and what the banks at the time could um, um, give us using uh, blockchain technology and also the because we're actually doing it from scratch it means that we can actually figure out better protocols even look a few years ago so so things like um, you know in the DeFi space that wouldn't exist if we didn't have things such as Ethereum and smart contracts so you know it just basically just gives us more flexibility gives us opens up a whole new world of opportunity rather than actually being kind of being stuck in this little tiny box and giving us this small set of apis to interact with i'm interested neil in in your perspective as as an entrepreneur and as a builder um you know very clearly what, what the customer problem was but uh, you know in terms of yield that you mentioned at the beginning and, and kind of user experience um but what what drew you to this space as as a builder as well like what is it it was there some other level of attraction to it versus the traditional rails and traditional ways of doing things yes yeah, so, so my background is uh, i've got a capital markets background and um one thing that i noticed in the conventional world is, is is a number of inefficiencies. And I'll tell you one concrete example, which is around, for example, lending and borrowing. This is not a new industry. It's just inefficient. So you have, uh, you know, traditional lenders, traditional borrowers, and you have maybe JP Morgan in between that taking a difference and a cut because they're having to fund other operations throughout the organization. And that's really how it's existed in, in the traditional world. Now, what decentralized finances said is, wait, we can actually automate that process by using software. And actually, we don't need to actually fund this inefficiency and we can make this process quicker, more, more, more transparent and efficient. And, and to me, that's the heart of the development that's happened in this industry. So this is actually creating more opportunity for, for everyday people because of this um, efficiency gain. Um, and I think that's the, that's the kind of heart of, uh, you know, what attracted me to this space, just living in a better financial world. 
I, so just to unpack that, the reality of the crypto markets right now is there are lots of people that are willing to borrow cryptocurrencies or stable coins in order to fund their trading activity, which is quite similar to what you see in capital markets. There's lots of traders who trade on margin or trade on leverage. So they're effectively, effectively borrowing to bet that something will happen in the market. And, and they, they can win big and they can lose big with, with that borrowing. Um, but they are borrowing. And as a result, the suppliers of that lending was somebody big, somebody centralized, somebody institutional. What DeFi says is we're democratizing that, that, that you or I could lend effectively by pooling our capital together into a liquidity pool. We put our, put our liquidity together and then somebody else comes and borrows and we earn the fee more or less directly. There's no middleman. There's a, a slight fee taken, I think, from, from some places, but not everywhere. And, and it's it's really just the software is is managing that between both sides. And as Rian says, and you can go look at that software. You can go audit that software yourself. So it's not proprietary lending done by a middleman with proprietary software. It's open source software, and you're really kind of um, putting those two pieces together. So I think that's super exciting. And I, and, and I want to flip from the consumer for a second into um, some big headlines we've seen recently. We saw Tesla have invested in buying Bitcoin. We've seen uh, that uh, Square has and you know PayPal's added some of these features. Sanke, what are your um, perspectives on like other types of investor coming into this space? Is it a speculative bubble? Are they just jumping on the bandwagon or is there something more going on here? I think it's a mix of both. I think uh, uh it demonstrates that there's strong conviction from someone like Square. And Square is not as relevant in this conversation than Tesla is. So a company that is not even at all associated with payments or banking, who has no vested interest in a protocol that's not owned by Visa or MasterCard. So this is a perspective of a company that just sits outside all of this. Uh, um, it definitely goes to show that uh, Tesla's CFO and the finance team believes enough in the protocol to be able to make some kind of an investment net. But people should also realize why they did this is because interest rates are very low and they think at least with this, they can increase the likelihood of maximizing some yield. So more than anything, it's a form of investment for them. But the fact that they're putting money into this versus a money market fund is a significant uh, um, um, thing to notice. That means larger companies are thinking this as a viable investment strategy versus not. That's a really powerful point, Sanket, that... Um, just holding dollars may be a bad investment right now. Um, Rian, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective there. Um, will others do the same? You know, what happens next? And and you know, what do you think about the the speculation side of it? Because this is the thing that always gets grown thrown at crypto. It's 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 just always a bubble, right? Well, the, that's the thing. And um, it's a cliche that the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. But of course, that's the um, thing that always makes the headlines. Um, you know, as we know, it's the technology behind this that makes it so fascinating. But of course, everybody does look at the price. And the conversations on crypto Twitter, obviously, are pretty focused on who is going to be the next big company to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. And every day, um, you see a different tip of somebody who knows somebody very well who has an inside 
friend at this company, company X, company Y. Um, you know, this company is going to start accepting Bitcoin as a payment method. This company is going to add Bitcoin to the balance sheet. I'm not chucking the company names out there because I don't want to stoke the bubble, but I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. Um, listen, anything can be a bubble. The question of whether the price uh, is where it should be now is a question for another time and for other people. But I certainly think that with the possibility of um, people seeing uh, fiat currencies inflating, um, as well as the low returns, it is something that more and more companies are looking at. Whether they actually take that step and buy is another question. Um, but I don't remember I've been in crypto a while now. I don't remember a few weeks like the last few weeks. It's just been um, fascinating seeing it all unfold. Hasn't it just? Neil, um, unpack um, the difference between what uh, a PayPal is doing and, and maybe the role that Square has really played in this for the consumer side, because um, I think those two moments were, were pretty significant. Yeah. Um, so, so for, for me, um, you know, Square and also Tesla, what they're largely doing at a macro level is validating crypto as a sector. And I think that that's the most important thing. Whether, whether these assets are going to be used as forms of payments, I mean, Bitcoin actually was never designed for an efficient payment mechanism. That, that's, not the, that, that's not the design. You know, so, someone bought a pizza with Bitcoin years ago, right? But that, that's not to say we should, we should be um, trying to buy coffees with, with Bitcoin, right? Um, I think that the, the bigger thing is people saying, look, it's here to stay. We believe in some of the fundamentals and there's going to be innovation around this ecosystem. And that's really what, what's changed by um, both Square and, and, and Tesla um, being more aggressive on, on this market at a macro level. And just double clicking on that, do you think then that um, this is a case of um, CBDC, central bank digital currency, will come along and, and just kind of compete with all of this and, and regulators are going to ban it out of existence? Or has the genie got too far out of the bottle? Because genies tend not to go quietly back into bottles, but how far out is this genie? Far. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't think it's easy to, to to contain this. I mean, you know, central bank digital currencies have been talked around for years, but to, to get the horse and cart in order takes so many years. And, uh, you know, I, I think right now governments have other things to worry about rather than, uh, you know, central bank uh, digital currencies. Well, well, thank you. Um, we've we've heard in the US for a long time that Fed now maybe maybe just three years away. It's I think it's constantly three years away. Um, but meanwhile, the the People's Bank of China is is actively trialing CBDC. So how much of this is like um, kind of possible and doable? You know, is CBDC realistic for the US, for Europe, for anywhere else? I think there are I think there are two different strain like thought processes here. I think. Um, a faster payment system um, built on top of some kind of a fork of a blockchain is very achievable and doable. We've seen enough privatized examples of this. Um, uh, Fed is just having their own um, operational issues in delivering this to the market. Uh, but here's what I usually tend to say to folks that are not this deep in finance. Uh, think of all the crypto assets as co-ops that you can research about, and if you feel a strong conviction towards, invest money in it. 
So I think what what Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum and all these different uh, uh, ideas are trying to champion is a decentralized financial system. Uh, and if you mind are subscribed to that thought process and you think that brand is strong enough, then owning the asset is like owning stock. So you can go ahead and do that. Uh, what, what CBDC is trying to do is just a little different. They're just trying to kind of like speed up uh, uh, transfers between two central authorities um, and in some cases, you're going to see a, a, a fork of crypto or a blockchain doing that. In some cases, you're just going to see like a private ledger application. So Fed now is going to be more private ledger, while uh, um, CDC is going to be a little bit. Uh, it's going to take some inspirations from um, a blockchain and then build something more privatized with it. Yeah, the, the digital currency electronic payment is is kind of taking inspiration, but it's it's very much a centralized ledger, isn't it, Rian? Yes, absolutely. And um, different countries have their own approaches. As as you say, um, the People's Bank of China scheme is live in several areas already. But one interesting point about um, CBDCs is that um, their fate is inextricably linked to that of the underlying currency and the underlying economy, of course. And when you were talking about is the genie out of the bottle, I think a lot of policymakers are very concerned about their citizens, particularly in countries that have weaker currencies. I mean, that was one of the main reasons for the big pushback against Facebook. Facebook's original plans, wasn't it, to have a global stable coin, is that this global stable coin would um, present a, an attractive alternative for um, retail customers to keep the, to keep their savings or to use rather than a currency where there might be inflation that was losing its value day to day. So the big question is, if you have a system where there is either something like Bitcoin or dollar-denominated stablecoins that people are able to use rather than their own native currency. It doesn't really matter whether that native currency is a CBDC or a traditional currency. If people have the option of putting it into something which they see as a better long-term prospect, then it raises huge macroeconomic policy considerations for regular, for, not just for regulators, but for governments. Well, governments don't want to let go of control of, of kind of the economy, right? They have a job to do, which is to manage the economy. And, and Neil, you were saying earlier, they're, they're, they're trying to prevent money laundering and they're trying to do uh, make sure that people don't lose their money. But at the same time, they've got an economy to run and manage and uh, to, to try and grow. That is their job. That is what they are essentially paid to do and their reason for existing. Um, how, how worried would you be if you were a regulator about the emergence of this world? Should they be worried or... Is there more opportunity than threat here? I think I think the key thing is for a regulator to look at this ecosystem and say, how does this make financial markets better and then fit more efficient? And the, the sooner that they can actually embrace the technological advancements, they will actually see that there's there's a lot more potential in it. Um, I think that um, you know that there's a, a common thesis in in crypto that the regulator doesn't know too much about this world, but actually you can see they're all trying to hire aggressively in, in you know, talent that actually understands, for example, decentralized financing and crypto. So, so I think that um, they, they don't come necessarily from a bad place. I, I just think they're a few years behind in actually saying, how do, how do they adopt this technology to actually further consumer services? Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my, my core perspective. 
Jonathan, what are some of the use cases here for um, cryptocurrency and money movement? Because um, we've talked a lot about consumer. We've talked a little bit about speculation. We've talked about lending. What are the ones that you're seeing at Mode? Um, at the minute, we're, I think we're seeing that actually people are using um, Bitcoin for remittance. So in, in, in places where people wouldn't normally use something like TransferWise, um, people are actually buying Bitcoin um, just because it's so easy using open banking and then buying Bitcoin with that and then transferring it to um, another wallet, whether that's somewhere overseas. Um, and also it removes a lot of the costs, a lot of the, I guess, some of the KYC hassles that would normally um, occur as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's... it's it, I think um, from a remittance um, point of view, um, it'll probably be a lot, a lot of competition for them. I think um, remittance businesses as we see them today probably won't exist, not in their current state within five years. Wow, that's that's, that's a big um, it's a big statement, but it's not as crazy as it sounds when you think that uh, I think the Nigerian Central Bank mentioned that 32% of Nigerians are currently holding Bitcoin, um, which again, from a remittance market standpoint, is is absolutely massive. So you know, these things seem to happen quietly and then suddenly, and and lo and behold, it, it's happened. Um, Sanka, the quietly and suddenly thing, you know, where, where do you stand on that? And, and to Neil's point earlier about you know, regulators are, are quite informed, um, do you think that the timing of that um, being informed is really, really good or, or the, there should be more that's being done? Um, as, as it stands for current regulations and policies, I think there is a way for cryptocurrencies to coexist. And um, that would be a little straightforward. So I think to the initial question, which is like, are, are regulators comfortable and ready with uh, um, for this? And is this a threat? Almost every single thing that they care about as it stands today in the current policy, um, you can make a really good argument and case for and build a much more secure system, how Neil pointed out. However, I do think the governments are not ready for this. So there might be some kind of a divide you're going to see over the course of next five years where some governments are going to lean into this while others are going to lean out of it and that would trigger new policy making that might further prohibit use of bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in certain countries versus the others so i think that is the big piece to look out for our friends over at Circle often talk about the um, the and, and the guys even at Visa have been talking about the seeing cryptocurrencies and specifically USDC and um, and other stable coins as being an alternative financial rail, but almost like a US dollar for everybody else. So rather than using Fedwire and ACH, you can use these wires for business to business payments and for for all kinds of things. And, and the US in particular has a has a history of co opting um, private market initiatives. And, and then sort of regulating them into existence. So if there's anywhere that could do it, um, then, then it might be the US. Um, Ryan, before we, before we leave cryptocurrencies, I don't think it would be a, a show if we didn't just briefly define what non-fungible tokens are. Um, if you've been um, sort of reading the news lately, it's probably just worth um, 60 seconds on, on what they are and how they're different to stable coins. Oh, sure. Okay. So um, a non-fungible token. I'm sure that lots of people listening are familiar with the idea of fungibility, that one unit of something is effectively identical to another unit of something. So you can have um, pound coins that are fungible. You can have 
Um, ears of corn, which are fungible. You can have oil, which is fungible. Something that's non-fungible is um, a beautiful antique, Kurt Cobain's guitar, something collectible, something unique and identifiable, even a tweet. And um, blockchain technology, of course, gives us the opportunity to uniquely identify different types of assets and turn them into a crypto asset that then becomes liquid and can be traded. And we've seen this massive, um, massive, I mean, the whole thing around crypto collectibles and NFT art has been ticking along in the background for a couple of years now, obviously. But in the last couple of months, it's gone absolutely off the scale. And those tiny little pixelated crypto punk images <laughs> um, selling for tens of thousands of dollars. Um, all of a sudden, we've had Christie's selling their first piece of NFT art. We're seeing really interesting things with um, digital physical twins represented with NFTs where you get the physical and the digital representation of things. We're just scratching the surface of what's possible with this stuff. But I, I always I think, like to think yeah. uh, about the, the Mona Lisa. Um, the original is worth a lot more than the copies. And um, if I can prove I've got the original, then it's worth a lot, lot more. But that didn't exist in the digital world. If I sent you an email, now there are two copies of that email. And you send it on, now there are three copies of that email. But if I send you a Bitcoin, you now have that Bitcoin and I no longer do, but they're fungible. So if I sent you a Bitcoin and you sent me one, we're whole. If I sent you the original Mona Lisa and you sent me a copy, guess what? I, I lose. And I think that is a really powerful um, force that could start to shape where, where crypto starts to go. So I thought it was worth defining that um, whilst we're in the, the crypto show. Um, Sankit, we're, we're running low on time, but do you think um, as we close this one out, we're ever going to see um, cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, stable coins become more of a standardized method for payments? Is, is that a likely scenario in the future? I think um, we're probably going to start moving towards um, like a privatized network that ins that takes some inspirations from cryptocurrency. I think it's hard to see where we stand today where uh, an open source crypto protocol is fully embraced uh, by the governments and the regulators. Um, I think you're going to see like pretty much what we've seen with cash. I think you're going to see less and less of traditional rails, more of uh, uh, rails backed by some kind of a crypto protocol. But from how far I can see, uh, probably privatized uh, if banks have to still be around versus not. Mm. Um, final thoughts, Neil, as you look to the future and grazing the crystal ball, what what, what are the next uh, sort of uh, 12 months look like? And I'm not asking for price predictions, but more uh, consumer adoption um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I think um, uh, what, what, what the first few uh, months of this year have proven is uh, uh, there's, there's widespread uh, acceptance of, of digital assets and, and we're going to probably see that continue for the next 12 months. People are going to engage in different ways to borrow, lend if they want. Um, you know, you're going to see artists who are in their bedroom making digital art and, and, and selling them online, um, you know, with, with NFTs. So I think what we're slowly seeing at a macro level is a transition from analog to digital play out in um, not only financial markets, but, but, but some other, um, you know, kind of hobby markets, if you want to look at art and, and collectibles. So I think um, it's uber exciting um, to see that transition and, and be really uh, at, at the sort of 
front line whilst that's that's playing out. Indeed, it's it's an exciting time um, for all of the things being built. Jonathan, what's exciting you as you look forward? Um, so what I'm looking forward to actually is um, rather people thinking about how to actually um, transfer fiat into crypto or crypto into fiat, I actually think more people will actually be keeping more of their funds and their savings in the crypto space. In fact, there'll probably be more people and more business accepting um, crypto and people will start thinking about actually how does that actually get into the kind of traditional banking system? How do I actually use that to pay my bills? We might even see, um, I guess, some of the utility companies start accepting maybe not Bitcoin, but it will probably be some kind of a stable coin. I mean, you're already seeing that in Southeast Asia. So um, companies like Terra, um, they've already got, um, you know, a, a very good stable coin that's, that's taken off. It's been adopted by one of the um, biggest um, e-commerce um, companies there. And I think it's even been adopted by at least I have quotes here by Mongolia as a government. So it's actually um, might be actually powering um, their stable coin um, going forward. So, yeah. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Rian, uh, what are your thoughts as we close out? Uh, what are you looking forward to in, in, in the next uh, sort of six, 12 months? The use cases that nobody's even thought of yet, because they will be here, such as the speed of development. But also specifically, I'm really interested in a lot of the kind of VR and metaverse stuff that's happening at the moment. There's a lot of excitement around um, the use of NFTs and digital currency in virtual worlds. And that tech, partly because of the pandemic, is really taking off, of course. Really fascinated to see where that takes us. Indeed, media are often early adopters of new technology and you see the disruption there before you see it anyway. So if we get media Legos and we've got money Legos, this could all get very interesting indeed. Uh, Well, listen, I could talk about this all day. Uh, This is actually my favorite subject. So thank you guys so much for joining me. Um, We'll be back next week lifting the lid on financial crime and what it is technology can do to really stay ahead of those scammers. And we touched a little bit on that today. So I think it was a really good tee up for that discussion. Um, So Rian, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Uh, Probably Twitter's the best place where I am. Rian, R-H-I-A-N underscore is. Jonathan. Uh, same for me, Twitter, um, and that's uh, Noodles in My Sand. I like it. Neil, how about you? Uh, your local donut shop. No, I'm joking. Uh, Twitter's Twitter's good. The, at the Neil Popper is, is is a good place to start. Thank you so much. Thank it. Um, yeah, if you want to know more about Synapse, you can go to synapsefi.com. Uh, same handle on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Um, if you want to talk to me personally, uh, then just my first name, Sinkat, on Twitter or LinkedIn. Fantastic. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can find out more about us at 11FS.com. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe, um, spread the word, tell everybody you know about the pod. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back with more next week. Bye for now. Bye.